Hey there, Discerning ThoughtBot podcast listener. I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your feedback. There's so many cool things that we'd love to do with all the shows and want to know how you feel about our sponsor reads and the possibility of starting a Patreon-style campaign to make them all possible. If you could head over to tbot.io slash survey for a super short questionnaire, your input would be much appreciated. That link again is tbot.io slash survey. And hey, thanks. You ever just jam out to that Skype music? It's catchy. The Skype ringing music? No, I I usually call you. You so can't I just hear, hear ringing. No, it's just ringing. It's like uh, it's like a music thing on my end. It's very catchy. It makes me kind of just want to sit with it for a minute. Like the bloop sounds. Uh, it's, it's like bloop 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 bloop. No 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 no. The, it's actually a song. Oh yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Gordon in Austin. And this is Build Phase. How's it going? How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Yeah. It's a rough morning. Mm. Giants? Just Yeah, yeah. sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, not great. Not great. Hold on, random pivot. Okay. Something <laughs> that I just learned today. Okay. Gwen Stefani is older than Ted Cruz. I did. I, I knew that. I actually knew that. I saw that the other day. Yeah, by like a few years too, like not by like days, right? Yeah, I guess I assume Ted Cruz was like in his 50s, but he's in his 30s. Yeah. What? (laughs) 30s? Right? God. I just assumed Gwen Stefani was way older than I thought she was, not that Ted Cruz was way younger than I thought he was. I'm sorry. Ted Cruz is 45. Gwen Stefani's almost 50. Okay. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Still. That's weird. Ted Ted Cruz does seem just kind of like a timeless eternal being wearing a skin suit <laughs> like a poorly really like a weird. poorly fitting skin suit <laughs> there's that good have we already talked about the amazing like the onion did like a whole series of articles about ted cruz that are all basically implying that he is from a different dimension or something like that People are doing these about Trump now, too, where um, that dude Chuck Tingle. Do you know Chuck Tingle? No, I don't. He writes very, very weird, bizarre, erotic novels. Really weird stuff. Really, really weird stuff that I don't I don't I don't want to get into it. You could look it up. But he wrote a thing like a Donald Trump fact check thing. Donald Trump. When I type Donald Trump into Safari, the first thing that pops up is Donald Trump dog poop bags.com. Fact. Check. Chuck. Tingle. You're saying so many things at me that don't make sense. In any other context, no one would understand what this means. <laughs> That's fine. So, uh, Trump debate facts.com. Mm-hmm. And it's all about how, like, Donald Trump is a being from the void and is using <laughs> a timeline paradox where he is making statements that are true in other timelines but false in this one it's like so weird is this satire oh yeah uh-huh oh okay because it sounds like the you know the david ike conspiracy theory about lizards no 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 this is a joke like like okay. that one of donald trump's claims during the first debate was 
I am not a poorly disguised mass of crabs wearing the skin of a bloated human. <laughs> and it says false. <laughs> it's very good. I'll send you this link. <laughs> Sorry. I don't, that got derailed. <laughs> but yes, I did know that about Ted Cruz. Are you there? Am Weird. I talking to myself? Yeah. No, sorry. Okay. Sorry. I, I was very distracted by these crabs emerging. Yeah, you know what? I'm closing the, I'm closing the tab. <laughs> I'm closing the tab. That's not good. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Intro. What's up? <laughs> you know. You know. <laughs> Just going to weird websites on the internet. Anyway. Yeah. What have you been working on? Well, I've had to migrate the iOS 10 extensions into a new code base. And in doing so, I've added them as sub projects mm-hmm. instead of just as targets to the main project to keep things clean. Yep. And so far that's worked really well because we got to work independently on actually hooking it up to the app, making changes to the, like the target settings. And there were no conflicts. There was hardly anything actually going on in the top level project file. Right. And so that was really, really nice. Oh, so you have them as actual sub projects, not in a workspace. Right. Yeah. Projects and subprojects. Why did you decide to use subprojects instead of a workspace? We didn't have a workspace to begin with because mm-hmm. I had completely moved us off of CocoaPods mm-hmm. and we just had a project. So I just threw them into subprojects. What, what would be the advantage to having them all in a workspace? Complete separation so that like the projects would be truly decoupled from each other. It's essentially the same, and I don't know if there's anything that like workspaces can do that pro- subprojects don't. I don't know enough about subprojects specifically to know for sure. But you know, if you had them as like sibling projects in a workspace, then they wouldn't even have direct references to each other, right? The workspace would just kind of collect them together. Hmm. Yeah, that's something I should look at. I, and I don't know. I don't know if there's a benefit to this or not. I'm just, I'm, I'm more curious about, cause I probably would have defaulted to workspaces, but I don't have a good argument for why I would default to a workspace. So I was interested to know if you had a good argument for defaulting to sub projects. I don't, but I, I will bring up something that I found interesting. We hit the Swift 2.3 broken incremental compilation bug Mm -hmm. where the slightest change in any file would cause every file to be recompiled in our app which is like 700 source files sweet after i de-integrated CocoaPods and deleted the workspace and stopped working in it that problem went away and it hasn't come back yet and that doesn't make any sense to me yeah i don't see why having a workspace or having pods would affect this but it's completely gone away hmm. and so i don't know if that's pod related or if it's workspace related for some reason um yeah i don't know yeah i don't i don't know either the problem i had previously when i moved to the carthage submodule system for frameworks that we talked about a few weeks back was i originally tried having them as sibling projects in the workspace the problem was when i went to the main app target and tried to link what would be the product of those projects, it didn't show up in that UI. And it wasn't clear to me how to make that connection. But if I moved them as sub projects, then I think it could see that like what the built product of this target would be, you can use this as a dependency. Yeah, you can do that. You just have to, s- I've done it before, you know, cause like Argo 
and runes and all those, those are set up using a workspace with sibling projects for dependencies. I don't remember what the steps were for grabbing those dependencies. Yeah, I, I should look at this because if I can completely decouple all the projects, that would be best. We have yeah. a lot of internal frameworks as well that are referenced via Carthage from other private repos mm-hmm. in our org. And it's kind of become a huge pain to, you know, make updates to that, get them reviewed, tag a release and like coordinate that with pushing some change in the app that depends on that, that also doesn't break it for like other branches that may like rebase on it or just, just coordinating the flow of like merging these things sort of close together so that you don't break the build for anyone. Right. And so we're thinking about going to the mono repo approach for our most heavily updated frameworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? You've been thinking about going to a mono repo. Is that what you just said? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So taking, you know, three or four of our most heavily updated framework repos and just, just bringing them over and just putting them yeah. in the same repo. We're already to a place where we can edit our dependencies in Xcode, even though they're referenced elsewhere. You just have to kind of be careful with submodules. But it would be faster to iterate on these things. The problem is, is that you have to be a little more disciplined about versioning because mm-hmm. the whole concept of versioning kind of goes away at that point. Right. Mono repos scare me, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. But I don't know if that isn't just because I don't know. I, I don't. I don't have any good reasons that mono repos worry me. Right. But like other people seem to do okay with those, right? Like right. Facebook famously has everything in one repo. I don't think we'd go whole hog. I, th- right. I think to start, we have we have a couple of frameworks that are totally foundational to the app. Like they might as well not even exist apart. Yeah. Those I think I would definitely pull in. So like I in a I was on a project where I guess a similar situation. I was on a project where we had an app. I think I talked about this on the show before, but we had an app and then we had basically a business logic SDK for the app to consume. And then we had a kind of testing support helper framework for the SDK. And we put all three of those in the same repo and actually had them all under like a sources directory, right? So it was like sources and then there was an app directory and a, we called it backend. There's a backend directory and then a testing support directory. And then that's where the sources actually lived. And then they had three different projects and a workspace that worked all right. And it was nice to be able to see the changes across the board. Like when you did do something like that, when you made a change to like essentially one of the dependencies to see that change then implemented in the source as well. I think one of the things that was confusing was that the project diffs, like it, it becomes harder to see where things are happening. Like, is this happening in one of the dependencies or is this happening in the app? You know what I mean? Like when you're skimming through a pull request, because mm-hmm. you just get like this big list of green or red or something. And it, and it can be, I found myself like reading through it unless you're like very conscious of the file names and the like the path for the file i found it very easy to to realize after the fact that something was being added to this target over here when maybe it could have been added to this target over here or vice versa you know Mm, interesting 
Yeah, I guess at first I was thinking that if the PRs are small enough, having it all in one place is hugely advantageous to code review. But I imagine in a case where that's big, the argument should be that you should be making a PR to this one target first to add some functionality and then a follow-up one that yeah. takes advantage of it. Yeah, maybe. So it's yeah. maybe a little more clear. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what you think after kind of going down that road. Because I didn't, I didn't mind it, and it was kind of nice. Although it did feel like a stopgap. Like I, I don't think that we saw – we didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it, but I don't think that we necessarily saw that as being the end goal, right, that they would all be in one repo. I think it was generally like, oh, we'll put these in one repo for now, and then we'll move, when we move forward at some point, we'll probably break these out into different repos. But I don't know if that's true. You know what I mean? It's like we didn't get to that point with that project because we never get to that point with projects. But you know what I mean? What would be your reasoning for breaking them out at that point? Again, I don't think I have a good one. I just mm. I ha- my impression is that that's what we would have done, and it's hard to say now because I'm not in that mindset. Like it was a few months ago, so I don't really remember kind of where I was at mentally during that. But my assumption is that that's what we would have tried to do. But we might not have, you know, it's, and I can't, again, I can't think of a good reason that we would have done that. I could think of maybe one really good reason and that it's, it takes less discipline to be disciplined about APIs. And yeah. I think that when you have a framework in a completely separate repo and you get a PR that changes public behavior, you get to have a conversation right there about how you're going to version this thing. Is it patch minor major? It forces you to think about access control and obviously you still would hear because separate modules but right a release of a dependency feels like a much bigger deal than throwing some new code in there and consuming it at the same time yeah so i guess the only time we would have broken them out is if like that sdk was intended to be consumed by other apps right it also forces you to be very aware of how interdependent your frameworks are yeah for sure like we, we have one that wraps the networking and the, the main models, and we have one that's all for UI. And at some point I could see it would be really easy to just go, well, you know, Venmo kit needs this view controller, but the view controller needs to be styled. So now I guess Venmo kit depends on Venmo UI. It's mm-hmm. a lot harder to do that or justify that when you have separate posts. So yep. I don't know. we're going to do this in the next week. So I will let you know. Cool. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing it. I had a thought. <laughs> yesterday totally changing topics abruptly but i had a thought yesterday or today about whether or not there is an opportunity that people have been ignoring around a core data wrapper like an unconventional core data wrapper so i'm still on this elixir project i'm working in it all the time and one of the things i consistently have been enjoying and you and I have talked about this a little bit, but like one of the things I've consistently been enjoying is how easy it is to move the database version forward, right? Without needing to have any like explicit core data ver- model version and without needing to have like I've never written a heavy duty core data version or a heavy data core data model migration from scratch, right? And I remember distinctly starting out and being confused by the idea of multiple core data versions 
Like I definitely had to nuke my app a number of times when I was starting out in iOS because I would just change the model and then it wouldn't even perform the lightweight migration. It would just blow up. And so today I was thinking about, so one of the things about core data is that uh, I think a lot of the external perception is that you need to use Xcode for core data because you need to get to that editor, right? Right. But that's not actually true. The editor is just wrap. It basically is not doing code gen, but it's a replacement for code gen that like you can do everything that the editor is doing in code. It's just a pain in the ass. Right. And I don't remember what it looks like. It's been forever since I read that core data book. I don't even remember who wrote it. Do you know the one I'm talking about? I think it's pragmatic programmers. Uh, Marcus Zara. Probably. So I haven't read that book in forever, but he walks through setting up a core data model without using the kind of GUI editor. And I wonder if there isn't an opportunity to leverage that, like leverage the ability to write these things in code combined with some kind of migration support for like essentially writing a kind of like lightweight DSL for writing core data migrations that would make that whole process easier. So like my kind of thought is something along the lines of like a library that wraps up the creation of the core data model by containing a lot of the boilerplate and you initialize it with whatever you need to initialize it with. And then you basically write migrations that are picked up somehow And then you just write your models like you would normally write your models if you're using core data. Does this sound crazy? Because it doesn't seem crazy to me, but I haven't touched core data in a while. So the end goal here is to be able to define migrations in code, but not using the core data APIs. Something simpler? Yeah, yeah, something simpler. So, So the idea is instead of having to say, like, I am changing from version one to version two. Right. And like creating a new core data model version in Xcode and doing all that stuff. I think the way it should probably work is that you implicitly like it would probably mean getting rid of lightweight migrations, but I'm not sure that that's a bad thing, but it would probably mean getting rid of lightweight migrations and that instead you write a super lightweight migration. So if you've never seen, um, kind of Ruby on Rails or Elixir, really ecto migrations but like they're very very simple right you write like create table users add name string add email string right and you can say like nullable false create a set up relations and do all that stuff writing something like that basically some lightweight dsl for moving from the previous version to the current version and so each of those migrations that you write implicitly behind the scenes becomes a different core data model version you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Then the framework, whatever this is that would wrap core data up, would basically, in my head, it would know what version it was previously on and what version it currently is on. You know what I mean? Like when, so you download an app update, it knows what version the app is currently on. And then at launch, you just have to call this method that then will just run every migration between where it was and where it needs to get to. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm following. Yep. Yep. 
And so if we're also trying to knock out the core data model editor altogether, is this thing also generating all of your NS managed object subclasses? Right. I don't know. I think you could combine it with a code gen tool. So like one of the common things is that both Rails and Phoenix or Rails and Ecto. Ecto is the database library that Phoenix uses, Phoenix being the web framework. So Phoenix is comparable to Rails, and then Ecto is comparable to Active Record, right? Active Record being Mm -hmm. the database tool on I think that analogy is correct. I don't know enough about I don't know enough about Rails to know if that's hundred percent true, but it's pretty close. So Ecto, what Ecto will do is you can just generate a migration and it'll just generate some code for you. Or you can generate a, you can say Ecto.gen, it's mix, mix is whatever. I'm not going to get into all the tooling around Phoenix, but you do like mix Ecto.gen.model. And then you give your model a name and some properties and it will just generate that code for you. It'll generate a migration to create that model and it will generate the model itself. Mm-hmm. So I could see maybe you have some code gen around this, but really I think that that would be a nicety on top of this, but really I don't think that you necessarily need that, except for that the code gen is much deeper now, isn't it? In Xcode 8? No. For core data models, I, I mean? Well, they've they finally started generating two sets of files in Objective-C. Right. They give you a file that you can edit, and then the what's actually generated is in a category that defines all the properties so that when you generate new models, you don't blow out all of your custom code. Mm. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, it doesn't get any deeper than that. But so even if a first step is, yes, you have to write all of this yourself. I feel like there are some, there would be some wins here in terms of, Weirdly, in terms of like adding magic, not magic, but like adding a layer that essentially, in my mind, removes some obfuscation from what core data is doing. You know what I mean? Like that the GUI and the lightweight migrations are great, but they cause confusion for early, like lower level developers or people that haven't messed with core data that much because it's not necessarily intuitive to like right click your model and create a new one you know what i mean yeah and like keep that record going and like how imperative it is to keep that record going like if you don't do that and the model doesn't match what's on disk and there's no way to migrate you know what i mean it just blows up and that that is scary to me that's always scared me this removes that magic through a weird layer of magic on its own, but it removes that magic in favor of, no, if you want to push your database forward, you write a migration and then it will push the database forward. Got it. So some persistent structure throughout your whole app. And then when there, when there's an update to the structure of the database, then you say like change the identifier in like a static let on this thing. And then at runtime, obviously this, migration needs to happen and if you don't return some object that's capable of specifying how the migration should go that like matches the old version and the new version then it throws an exception i I think i get what you're saying you're trying like lightweight migrations are magic and heavyweight migrations suck and it 
And it depends on you configuring everything in a couple different places, including your code, but nothing is really statically checked for you. But in this case, it, it really would be like the first time you try to work with an updated model, it would just crash and say, here's a really helpful error message. Like you need to provide a migration from three to four. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Or it would just say probably something more along the lines of like that field doesn't exist. Right. You know what I mean? Like that's what happens in Ecto. Like if I try saving something to the database when that, that field doesn't exist in the database or that column doesn't exist in the database or whatever, right? It just will say like, Hey, that doesn't exist, <laughs> you know, but Got there's, I should, I don't know if I can pull out anything that will make sense out of context for any of this. Cause most of this is just in my head. Maybe I'll link to like the Ecto migration pages or something like that. Because that, that would be my ideal, right? Is you write these little Swift files that are like essentially time stamped, right? And so then we just perform the migrations in order based on their timestamp. So they're essentially time stamped in the file name. And I'm not sure how that, that would work. You know what I mean? Like we would need to do something else there because you can't just have it pull up. The missing piece here is probably metaprogramming. Like the, the missing piece to get this to work the way I think it should probably work is probably metaprogramming because you would need to do some kind of lookup sorting of methods or sorting of, you would either need to get like all methods on this object, in which case we're creating files that are extending some root class. You need to either get all the methods on this object and call them dynamically, or you would need to look at files on disk, which doesn't make any sense in the context of Swift. I think you'd actually be okay because you're still working with NS managed object subclasses and the entire structure is still defined in these NS entity description, NS property description, and NS relationship descriptions, which are basically code versions of the structure of your types. So you can, you can access all of the properties on an entity. Hmm. Well, but I'm talking about for the migrations themselves, like the way that you'd write the migrations themselves and the way we'd know which order the migrations need to be performed in. Oh, I see. To be able to reference like members on. Well, to be able to run those migrations, right? Because you'd need to run the migration. The the migrations are inherently going to be order dependent, right? If I add a user model and it's just a standalone model. So I write a write a migration called like create user. And then I am going to then add a company model and that company is going to reference users. So then I say, okay, here's my company model. Uh, sorry. So I have create user and then I come back later and I write create company. And in that migration, I'm referencing users. If those are run out of order, then when it tries to create a, you know, reference from company to user, it won't know what that users are in the database. Okay. You get what I'm saying? So those are, those are order dependent. They need to be run in the order that they were created. So we need to do some kind of timestamp somewhere like Ecto and Rails both use like timestamps in the file names, right? Because they're run as scripts. Basically they're not compiled into the, it's like a totally separate thing from production code to like mess with the database. You know what I mean? Yeah. So parallel to the persistent store, there's some persistent metadata. Yeah, maybe. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I've heard of folks that, you know, hit versioned APIs and use core data. They will store the version of the API 
that they last hit in the persistent store metadata. And so next time they can, I mean, they can check to see if what they have currently is going to work with this, like maybe new version of the API that they're hitting. Maybe they're getting new versions back and ideally by then the migration would have been run, but I thought that was an interesting idea. Yeah. I felt like there's something there, but I don't have the time or energy to look into it. So this is my way of trying to nerd snipe our listeners into doing it for me. Got it. Yeah. I mean, you don't even do iOS development anymore. No, I'm not an iOS developer. I'm an Elixir developer. I actually have to record another podcast tomorrow with Jack. And it's like, I don't know how I'm going to fill up two days worth of podcast recording when I haven't touched iOS in three weeks. When I talk to Jack, we just talk about like social issues Uh and just what's going on in Sweden. And then we do like 10 minutes of tech. It works pretty nicely. Uh, Maybe I I might do that. Jack can just talk about anything. (laughs) Cool. I'll talk to him about shirts. There we go. Soon the He loves shirts. Just get fashion advice. All right. You want to wrap it up? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So show notes for this episode are going to be found at buildphase.fm slash 111. And as always, we'd like to hear from you. So email us at hosts at buildphase.fm or reach out on Twitter at buildphase. And we really appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. Cool. Good talk. All right. Later. See you.